And then we all have these holes and we have these issues and things that we really have to do the work to work through. If we don't work on those things, we bring them into our adult life and into our marriage and into our relationships in general. So it's, it's so important to do the soul searching and to go back and look at yourself, work on yourself. And that that's something that you can control or that you can make choices for as opposed to looking to other people. We eventually saw in the first eight years of our marriage that there was a lot of work that we didn't address. And we called ourselves starting out our relationship as, as really good friends. But somehow, like, we transitioned from being best friends that could say anything to each other, that when the romance came in, you chase after the Hollywood version of what romance looks like. So you don't really tell your real self because you enjoy the feeling of romance. You don't really share your real expressions or feelings, and some of them you don't know about. one person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. Welcome back to See One Beautiful Soul. This is one of my favorite episodes. I got to hang out with Eric and Susan Kellum. They are both pastors. They are survivors of infidelity. They are incredible parents. They are incredible partners to one another. Eric is a public author. They both counsel people one-on-one as well as in couples and on retreat. You can find Eric's book as well as get in touch with them through Eric Kellum, E-R-I-C-K-E-L-L-U-M or Susan Kellum on social media. Please join me in speakmymagic.com and write your book, your TED talk, do your short film, get in touch with your creative side, go to speakmymagic.com and join us live weekly on Zoom and in our exclusive private Facebook group. I believe this episode will give you more faith in the authentic institution of marriage and love. Eric and Susan Kellum, not every day that I get to have a couple of stars at once. I already know Susan's a star because I've had the distinct honor and pleasure of getting to know Eric on Clubhouse and in Clubhouse, especially our rooms, Eric, whichever ones we meet in, we are, mm-hmm. we attracted to the deep and the real. And so I've gotten such an opportunity. Every time you speak, everyone in the room, you can feel them listening in stronger and more concentrated. So I can only imagine the woman you chose is probably a little even higher level. Sorry, but that's how I usually go. <laughs> it was Eve that was like, why can't we eat? She didn't say let's eat. She was like, "What, Adam, why can't we? And so she was tested harder because she was like a little more sensitive. HSP, highly sensitive person. Uh, she was a little persuasive though. She was a little persuasive. Oh, we can get into that. God bless you guys. Thank you for being here. Let's just dive in. Eric, your story is fascinating from the beginning. You started out in your life having to forgive. He was born into uh, a home with a single parent, a mom. Didn't know my dad. At the time, I was so young, I didn't know the gravity of her having a mental illness um, to the degree that it would affect me. I was in and out of social services. I remember being in social services because um, she left me at the apartment by myself once. I had a situation where this family 
wanted to adopt me. The dad of this family, he was a lawyer and he was friends with the social services worker and they were trying to work out something, but my mom would never give permission. So they worked out some type of deal, which was really weird, but only God could work this out where I would be able to go hang out with them on the weekends. And then during the week, I'd be with my mom. And so I didn't really think about this. I had to be about three or four years old at the time. And every time I came home, I would probably share with my mom all the cool stuff that was happening on the weekend. Like these were up and coming attorneys and they had more opportunity to provide more stuff for me. So I got cool stuff as a three or four year old. It was like absolutely amazing. And I remember sometime around four or five, I'm walking with my mom down the street and I see the car of this family and I'm waving and she puts my hand down and she says, um, you're not going to be seeing them anymore. And I was like, okay, I didn't understand it, but I just took it, you know, chalked it up. Like, I guess that's done. And not long after that, my mom and I were in a Greyhound bus station and she told me that she was going to go look for my dad. I'd never known my dad, never saw my dad. So I thought, you know, I don't know how long you're going to be gone, mom, but hey, you're going to bring me, bring back my dad. We'll be a happy family. It'll be great. So I accepted it. And she said, the lady sitting next to you is going to take care of you. And I never met the lady before in my life. I never saw her before. I don't even know if she was privy to this. I guess she was just making stuff on the spot, making it up. So she went to get on the bus. I waved goodbye. Five years old. I looked over. This lady was gone. And I was there at the bus station all by myself. My grandfather, my step-grandmother, um, and my aunt, they ended up coming to get me. I guess I had remembered somebody's number. And they came and got me. And I stayed with my grandfather and my step-grandmother until I was eight years old. At that point, my grandfather died. Diabetes had taken his toll. And I stayed with my step-grandmother. And she gave me an option to either stay with her or go stay with my biological family, which were down in Florida. And I just remember going to church with her and liking it. And I didn't realize it at that point, but it was really a Ruth and Naomi situation that was happening in my life. Her God became my God. And I was really gravitated toward the faith. I mean, I didn't know years later I'd be, a, my profession would be in the faith, but it just seemed like the natural thing to do. Now, mind you, Barb, you got to understand, these were my favorite cousins. Like, I love playing with them, but I chose not to go down the path of staying with them in Florida. I stayed with my step-grandmother. It was just me and her. And I think the sovereignty of that is when and I love my cousins to life and death, but many of the choices they ended up making in their teen years because their mom and dad divorced, it probably would have been me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, God had me on a more... Um, sovereign path. So fast forwarding the story a little bit. I'm staying with her from eight, nine, 10, 11. Grandma's getting a little strict. I can't go out and play beyond the front yard. I can't play in the grass. I can only play on the sidewalk. All my friends could go through the park. I look like some like Bama, like riding up and down the sidewalk. And that's all I could do with my bike. Around 11 or 12, I start doing these oratorical competitions and I run into this man in one of these competitions and he's just staring at me with this giddy grin. And I'm like, who is this dude? And it feels kind of weird. I don't know you, what's going on? And at the end of my speech, he said, I'm Bill Littlejohn. And I had no idea who that was. It turns out it was the attorney that wanted to adopt me when I was much younger. And he and his wife sat down with me and said, we always wanted to adopt you, but your mom cut off communication immediately. And our daughters didn't know how to handle that. <sighs> they had grown so attached to you and if you still want, we want to adopt you now. 
And I'm thinking as a 12-year-old, freedom, yes. <laughs> but I also knew that my grandmother at the time had also taken on couple of her other grandkids. Um, it was a lot for her. So it just seemed like the right decision. They never could adopt me because my mother never gave permission. But I mean, as far as, you know, I knew they were mom and dad from 12 all the way till I became a legal adult and beyond. My kids know them as their grandparents, their aunties and, you know, the whole thing. And it's my own personal navigation that God took me through in life to get me through very challenging situation the the sovereignty component for me like the, it's there's not a coincidence in it per se but all these things lining up like they just happened to be at this particular contest for their daughter so it's not as if they were really hunting or looking for him per se not that they loved you in your heart they were there to support their daughter in middle school and in the competition they just happened to see him there recognize him and the trajectory of his life completely shifted yeah. in that moment yeah. because of the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And here's the crazy part about it. If I would go out in public after they had like taken me into their care and their custody, people would always say, um, you know, you, you act just like your dad or you look just like your mom yeah. or are you and your sister twins? I had just like blended into the family so well. There's a passage in Psalms that says God provides a home for those that are in solitude. It was incredible. I want to highlight this before we jump into Susan's story. I have a bunch of soul families too. Mm -hmm. I wasn't left at a bus station, but I was left many times. Mm. And I think that's why I connect so hard and so deeply to you both. Um, I have so many rabbis and Jewish community members that call themselves my auntie, you know, my second parents, my extra grandparents. I have a, a Zadie in Yiddish. It means grandfather. Okay. Called me up just the other day and was like, by the way, you know, if God forbid you don't find your husband soon, I'm going to pay for you to have a child. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> Out of the blue, you know? Yeah. And um, I want to highlight for anybody listening who feels alone. Yeah. You are never alone. Yeah. And I don't just mean like, because God is watching us. God right. is watching us. Sing, Bart. Because not only is God within you and are swimming all around you, but there are people, there are human beings, yeah. there are angels in your midst that were brought right up to you. I don't care where you live. If you're even in Guam, God knows your GP, your God positioning system. And they are waiting to take care of you. And the only thing separating you from those people that want to help you desperately is your complaints and you saying, no, I'm alone. And usually someone has a cigarette in their hand or something else in their hand that is stopping them. It's like almost like an agent of, of non-change. You, you can't, you can't let it in unless you let him in. So I break out into song. Um, <laughs> Susan's like, what is going on here? <laughs> she don't know. No, maybe she watched my videos. Um, I'm just, this is me. Like everything you see on Instagram, that's actually how kooky I really, I don't do drugs. I mean, I, this is decaf coffee. So anyway, um, God bless you for that story. I am so in awe of how those people just sh literally showed up for you. And I want to hear more about them. But before we do, so let's, 
let's find out who your soulmate is. So what was her first 11 years of life like? I honestly say that there was a time where I questioned the power of my story because I didn't have all the tragedy that my husband went through. And I felt like you had to have something major to have power to speak to something. And I realized we all have a story. We all have a journey. And that everything that's happened, shape, the shape of our souls is made up of the things that we go through. Um, for me, I, was, I had a very blessed, I would say, childhood growing up with um, my parents. I did feel love. But on the flip side, there was a lot of, we were a very religious family. I'll say that growing up in church, but, and we did a lot of care for other people, but there was not always the self-care component. We knew what it looked like to look like love externally to other people in our circle, all the right things to say, but the inner peace of loving self-love or, or self-esteem was very low. My mom suffers. I say that suffered from low self-esteem, blended family. My, we're the product of my dad's second marriage. And that, that plays a role as well in this because I've now been reconciled with my other siblings. But growing up, we did not really have an opportunity to know them. And we've done the work to connect on our own as adult. But as, as a child, there were three sisters. I'm the middle child of three girls. I think birth order is significant in some ways as well. So I'm a middle child. And that played a lot into kind of feeling a lot of insignificance. I was always an overachiever. I wanted to be noticed. I wanted to be seen. So I'm smart. So I hold on to the fact that I love to think. I love to express myself and academic, you know, achievers. So I kind of put everything into that. And there were these external things, but internally, I did not feel pretty. I did not feel valued. And my father, bless his soul, did not know how to express affection. And that's so key for a little girl. If you have a dad there and the voice of the father is so important to yeah. hear affirmation from your father or to feel pretty or to feel beautiful or loved because of our society and what we see when you see on TV, the images or the princess or the other things. So as, as a little black girl, not seeing, you know, the, that affirmation as much. And it's, it was better in the eighties. I'm an eighties girl. But it's, Ooh, me too. it still was nowhere near where it has come to now, which is great progress. We're, we're growing, but feeling less than. Is it progress? We got to talk about that in a minute. Well, that's a good conversation. At some point, when Tiana came out with Disney, it, it did something for me. I had a daughter who was celebrating her seventh birthday and they loved the princesses and I didn't take that from them because I love the princess. Feel that place of scrolling through. I don't see myself here. And yeah. the only thing that kind of relates when it gets to me is the animal kingdom, which is beautiful. But so we got Nala <laughs> finally be able to give her a Tiana themed birthday party. And she, so I say the progress in that at least, the at least, because when you're on the, in that perspective, you'll take the crumbs. They're crumbs and they are crumbs now, I say. But we'll take those crumbs when we haven't had much. So for me, there's so much, there's so much that's so loaded. We were not in our household allowed to look at some of the shows that were coming about at that time. So certain things that I guess what's happening or whatever the shows were, my parents were like, yeah, because they're only showing one side of things. I don't want you to get caught up in that. And they had honestly a lot of uh, esteem issues and I guess not awareness that there was self-hatred and low esteem about who we were. Kind of taught to assimilate more. 
just saying it, that's the way it was. So uh, things that seem, you don't want to come across too ghetto. So you need to make sure that you're doing this, 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 and this. And my dad, I realize now, didn't know how to express them. But when you're a kid and you don't, you don't really care that the person's hurting or that they don't know because you want that. So you're like, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I not beautiful? And it was just a lack of affection. I know he loved us. He didn't know how to show it. So at the time, we didn't feel it and we questioned. Now, for me personally, I'm grateful that not having that, I chose to look to a, a spiritual component for that relates for that for that void. But not all of my siblings did. Not all of our family members did. Some you'll look sometimes in the wrong places. My esteem was very low, and I did find esteem in the in my abilities or things that I could do. So um, I skills and talents and instruments and music. Sis can sing. I sing. I grew up um, exposed to classical music. I'm grateful for my childhood for the most part. But there were, th what I realized is that we all are broken and we all have these holes and we have these issues and things that we really have to do the work to work through. And um, if we don't work on those things, we bring them into our adult life and into our marriage and into our relationships in general. So it's, it's so important to do the soul searching and to go back and look at yourself, work on yourself. And that that's something that you can control or that you can make choices for as opposed to looking to other people. We eventually saw in the first eight years of our marriage that there was a lot of work that we didn't address. And we called ourselves starting out our relationship as, as really good friends, but somehow like we transitioned from being best friends that could say anything to each other, that when the romance came in, you chase after the Hollywood version of what romance looks like. So you don't really tell your real self because you enjoy the feeling of romance. You don't really share your real expressions or feelings and some of them you don't know about. We got to a point where I was looking for words of affirmation from my wife, but she didn't really think words of affirmation were were fruitful because of what she received from her dad yeah, or, yeah. Did, or didn't receive from her dad. And, you know, we were almost to the point where it almost destroyed us. The absence of the affirmation, the absence of the affection. We went to church a lot, <laughs> maybe, I don't know, eight days out of seven. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if you like breathed outside of church, exactly. you might be sitting. sitting. no. So they, you couldn't go to the movies. Listen. No, no movies. You couldn't no. listen to secular music. So the best thing you could do was just stay in church. Right. So <laughs> I think they were there was a lot of fear there. You don't want to, you know, do anything to mess up your way. So you gotta you gotta be here, be present. There wasn't a lot of room to go or do anything else. And in my case, the salvation from that was music because I got to go to music school. So I had private lessons on one day, I had music class in the evenings. So we were allowed to miss church to go to music schools. And then in the summer, we were in something that's called the DC Youth Orchestra Program, which I love. It's absolutely amazing. Shameless plug. My musical language was a combination of gospel and classical. Cool. I can't wait to hear your music. Do you have original music? Locked away in a vault somewhere. All right. We need to have a coaching set because that's what I do for people.
<laughs> for me, the defense mechanism was to say, I don't need that. Even though it wasn't true, I accepted those false truths that maybe I'm not the best one or maybe I can't do those things, but I don't need to. I'm going to still be successful. I still have drive. I can. I may not be pretty, but I'm smart. I may not be this, as opposed to saying I'm pretty and I'm smart. I'm beautiful. There's value in every part of me. And it doesn't have to look like what that looks like for someone else. And that's okay. You were growing through your marriage issues or challenges. Is that when you rose up because it was sort of like, like fight or flight, like we either going to do this and I need to take care of me. Is that kind of how you figured that out? Or did you figure it out along the way? I figured it out along the way, but it impacted, I think my initial responses to the problems that we were having in our marriage, because what that did is the issues that we were dealing with and I had not fully um, processed and dealt with some of these other holes in my soul from childhood that resurfaced trigger of those things kind of came back. So us having challenges in our marriage, I was allowing or using the, the marriage relationship as a form of validation. Something's wrong. What's wrong with me? I begin to feel inadequate. I'm weighing all of my chips now on whether or not you love me. And that's not healthy. You're supposed to love me and we're supposed to love one another. But if something happens with another person that doesn't add up or fall out the way that I think it should, it shouldn't be the end of me. Forcing me to respond or, or look within to say, I'm crushed by what you did or what you said. And I have to process that and still figure out who I am and, and find out who I am as an individual and who God's made me. I'm still loved. You know, I'm worthy to be loved and I've got to be strong for my kid, but I've got to be strong for me. See past what you may do or may, or may have done because you were hurting too. So Eric... Mm. You've written a book on this. You speak mm -hmm. about this. And I'm so grateful because I come from a family where my dad straight, they completely disintegrated. And it was disintegrated before the fall. You know, anytime someone leaves a marriage, and I don't care if it's addiction to substances, to gambling, to, you know, uh, opioid, to whatever, to porn, uh, even emotional connections mm -hmm. with another outside of your marriage, uh, emotional intimacy doesn't even matter what it is, you know, something provoked that. And it's usually exactly what you're talking about. Your own self-worth, both parties are calling that challenge in. So, and it, it isn't the end of you. It's the beginning because yeah. it's a new, it's a new relationship. It's a new relationship with yourself. So Eric, why don't you speak to that for a moment? It was a deficiency of intimacy that led me to commit infidelity. It required a level of intimacy for us to heal and bounce back that quite frankly, most couples when they're dealing with infidelity, they don't, they don't do what it takes and have the conversations that are needed to come back from that hit. Now, um, part of my um, deception for myself as I'm going down this path is that I justified that because I was not physically cheating, then it was okay. But what I've learned, um, and, and I probably in counseling sessions advocate more for the um, person that has been cheated on as opposed to the person that has done the cheating, which is normally the female has been cheated on, but there are obviously exceptions to the norm. But I understand now on a deeper level, emotional intimacy, which is spiritual, is far more significant than physical anyway. Because you can casually have sex with anyone and not even have an attachment. But to give your soul to someone 
in such a that they, they have a moment that they can take with them and uses bragging uses is boastful it's 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 something that's shared and so um i bring that up because um when we first went down this path and <laughs> january 8 2008 is the date that will forever be ingrained in my brain that's when my wife um found discovery my phone day. <laughs> that was discovery day that was d-day discovery day and when she found the phone she went down this first of all she separated she left the house but she found this um she this inspector gadget spirit just came upon her and she just found so much stuff and what was so amazing was that i had did rendezvous where i was meeting a females in parking lots or going to a female's house. I was doing all types of crazy stuff, but I never crossed the line physically with any of them. And that was something, first of all, it was hard to believe when my wife, when I told my wife about it. But second of all, um, like for me to go through that point and not go to that next level was really a miracle from God. But there was a reason why I was doing it as she and her investigation was challenging me to look at myself. I realized I wasn't looking for sex. You know what I was looking for? I was looking for the little boy, Eric, who had been abandoned. And I remember one time when I was like eight or nine, there was some older teenage girls and said, boy, you're going to be a heartbreaker when you grew up. And that was like the best thing I could grab for words of affirmation. Like that felt really good. You know, that felt Yet that's such a bad blessing to give someone right. that means you're going to break someone's heart. It's actually the worst thing you could say to someone. Right. And we take it as a compliment Absolutely. or when people say that, like, oh, I'm going to be a heartbreaker. But think about what you're saying. Do you really want to break hearts? And but but for you, it was esteem. So people build themselves up on the power, right. I guess, to right. be able to do that. Right. So. So I realized about myself because again like folks that deal with this or any issue if you don't go to the root of the why Mm -hmm. if you don't go to why i use this drug what is supposed to be fueling in my soul gi joe said knowing's half the battle like you still got to execute you still got to work stuff out but if you're not aware of what the situation is and you're liable to put yourself in the same situation but i want to give you an example i, I knew all of this already like she's the greater she's don't, she, don't she, do that no you just did that for me on the stream see see she doesn't you share she, she, she's she's still working on receiving is, compliments i am yes <laughs> receive it thank Come you on. put the arm down <laughs> I love you. I'll grab that. I feel love from you. Um, yes, and you are loved. And from your listeners as well. I was very uh, guarded. The word is guarded because um, just as a person in general, but even after these things have happened and we've experienced these things, it took a while for me to get to the place of openness to not be ashamed or want to share them. But there's so much power in being open and, and showing your scars and showing your hands and or showing whatever you've been through so that someone else can can learn from it. I want to highlight that just for a second. That is our greatest gift of being Generation X, Y, whatever we are. We learned how to open up the scars and show them to people. The problem though, and we can talk about this in a moment, being people of faith and having our tribes to go through to and learn about God's laws because we need them so badly, is that there is a time and a place there's a channel for it and 
I am so sick of everybody saying, well, show it, just let it out. It's like, yeah. I mean, this whole podcast is like, this is who I forgave. This is the horrible scar I went through. Check it out. I get that. But I do it. I, I try to present these amazing stories from the heart. And when I hear, we'll just call it out, like the WAP song or, you know, certain things that Madonna has done. And, and I respect her as an artist. She's beautiful just as she is. But there are certain things that are being presented to our children mm-hmm. with these phones. And I don't even have children, but I consider all the students I've had, I've had thousands of students per year at retreats and camps and working at uh, over 40 different schools at this point. Mm-hmm. and running my own programs for kids. And it's like, we have an obligation. And responsibility. Yes. And, and, you know, Eric has told me that he's had conversations with your children at certain times in their life when they can handle it. Being a child of, of I was a parentified child. My parents shared everything with me. There were no boundaries. And I was sort of valued as a therapist in my house. So was my sister. <laughs> and so... I became very precocious and also talk back and, you know, why would I respect them? They don't even respect themselves. And so that's what I wanted to highlight that I agree with you. We have to share our scars in the right times and places so people can hear and learn from them. And we stop cycles of violence. However, there are things that are meant to be intimate Mm -hmm with our partner that nobody needs to hear. It's nobody's business. In fact, what I've learned from being Jewish and seeing the Orthodox who also live at synagogue, by the way, you know, it's your home away from home. And I love that idea. There's a sheltering for good reason, not all the time, but some of the time there is a place for just things that happen in your family, in your community, in your relationship, right? Yeah. And so I just want to highlight that because I agree with you and yet, right? There's what, when do we share? And so I just love that he asked you, he said, can I share this, you know, because it should be something you discuss between the two of you. Anyway, go ahead, Eric. You're about to say a really important story. But at that point, we've learned this, this distinction between wounds and scars. Like that we we've done marriage um sessions with other couples. And I remember one time we were going back and forth about a particular situation in our past. And to the person listening in, they're like, wow, this is delicate. It's going to turn into a fight. I don't <laughs> want to be in a room. But we were talking about it so casually because while nobody still enjoys having a scar, like you have a scar on your face, you're like, oh my gosh, everybody's going to always look at that and that you're not comfortable with that until you kind of get comfortable and make it your own. It's not a wound. We've gone through a, a lot of conversations and understanding. Susan has honestly taught me how to talk through this stuff. Um, she was she was really a coach in many ways because, you know, me, probably like other men, take the the the, the approach of, all right, we're addressing it, we'll fix it, let's move on. And that was my posture when we first um, had to deal with surviving this infidelity, getting past this infidelity. One thing she always said was like, it was as if you injected me with this poison that I still have in my system and you're good now. You went to God, you asked for forgiveness, you're moving on with your life but I'm still stuck here 
And I just want to ask questions because the more we talk about it, the more I can get it out of my system, but you want to keep shutting it down. I need you to walk with me through this process. And my thought initially was if I walk with you through this process, then I got to relive how horrible and ugly and nasty I am over and over and over again. And God finally reminded me if that's what it takes for you to restore your wife, redeem, and I can't do the redeeming, God does, but be the vessel and operate in a way to get help her to get her sense of, of what's the word I'm looking for? Value. Value. Trust, value. Yes. Okay. Getting Restore it back. Value for me was then if it makes you feel uncomfortable and painful, that's the least you could do. And, and it, it required a level of sacrifice for you in that, in that way because it was uncomfortable, but I needed I needed you to restore honor for me as your wife in that place that I felt like there's certain things that should be sacred for us that are just between us as a husband and wife that 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 covenant has been breached or violated when you went outside of that to source. You outsourced that, which should have been here. That should have been between us. Uh, And because it was, I now need you to put back or reinvest into this, even if it hurts, even if it's uncomfortable, because you just injected me, and I didn't use the word venom at that time, with all these new things, and they're toxic, and it's venomous for me, and I'm feeling all of these things at once, and it's fresh for me. This is new. I'm starting at this point now, and it's the end for you of that particular season. It's the beginning of that season for me, and so there's going to have to be on both sides, we both, I've got to be uncomfortable. You've got to be uncomfortable, but I need you right now to be willing because I'm worth at this point, you being uncomfortable to come and help me to get this out. And and I want to be clear for whoever listens, if there are listeners that are going through something similar, because I think one of the things that helped Susan is she realized this infidelity thing, this is really more common than I realized, which means it may not necessarily be my fault, but that there's something wrong with me. There could be something wrong with him. You know what I'm saying? There's something wrong with all of us. I had to, even with that, I needed to look at myself as a, and I didn't do that right away. Initially it was you, you did this to me. How could you do this to us? You're bringing other people into the relationship and it's all trash now. Everything is being thrown away there. I have a struggle with perfectionism and that some of that goes back to just the image. What's important, what people see, what you project to others. You want to always show that nice selfie, that picture that looks good, right? Not see the real, like you said, the deep and the real is ugly. Mm-hmm. It's not pretty, mm-hmm. but we need sometimes to show, even amongst our, to ourselves, show our scars or those, in, in this space, be real with each other and be authentic, even if it hurts, even if it's uncomfortable so that we can, you know, just be true. And, um, and think about how, all the other people you affect by being that authentic. Even when we went through this process of dealing with the ugly, and the uncomfortable. We're saying it calm now, but I'm going to tell you, we had a routine. We would put the kids to bed. Yeah. How many kids do you have at this point? How old are they? Three kids at this point. And you're with child. We had three and I was pregnant with our fourth. In divine timing. Imagine if you had waited or if it had happened sooner, it was all meant to be. Yeah, it really was. We would put the kids to bed and we would start the conversation. And the conversation would consist of anything from her asking a question to me giving an honest reaction to her responding to that reaction, to some screaming, to some crying, to some questions. 
it was like painful. Raw. It felt, it was very raw. It was very unadulterated. But doing that over and over again, eventually the calm came. Yeah. And we had, and I'm saying this because a lot of people, they feel like, oh my gosh, I can't have this conversation with you because it's getting out of control. Now I'm not saying out of control to the point where it, it imposes violence because that didn't happen with us, you know. But I'm saying sometimes it's going to be, and you're going to not like it and it's going to feel very, not even uncomfortable, painful, gut-wrenching, but it was what we had to do to get through the process to get through the calm. Susie introduced me a song, the album's called The Tribute. It's by The Script, and it's called For the First Time. That became like one of our anthems in the midst of the storm, um, getting cheap bottles of wine, talking about stuff we haven't talked about for a while, smiling, but we're close to tears. Even after all these years, we just now got the feeling that we're meeting for the first time. And we had to like get beyond all of the noise to introduce ourselves again. And what a journey it was. And I, I, I dare not say I, I'm glad that I dragged Susie through all the hell to get us to that point. But I am so thankful for where we found intimacy in that place to carry us from what well, that was 2008. So here we are in 2021, 13 years past that, you know, having this life that we have now. Kenny Loggins also has a song called For the First Time. I don't know if you've ever heard it. For the first time I am looking in your eyes. For the first time I'm seeing who you are. Can't believe how much I see when you're looking back at me. Now I understand why love is love is for the first time. And I love that song. I he's so gospely, even if you know he has different skin. He, is. he really is. <laughs> I love any gospel music. I love Christmas music, even though I'm a big Jew. Because <laughs> Okay, wait, 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 wait. So listen, that goes back to the story I was going to tell. Christmas song. Like, my wife has sung, led worship teams. Like, she just sang her face in so many places. And I'm always, for a Christmas gift, the first seven years we were married, I always asked for this one gift. I said, I just want you to sing to me, Oh Holy Night. Now, my specific request is I want her to sing it with nothing on but Holly. But that's a whole other story. Hey, I just wanted you to sing that to me and I'd be your audience, right? And she would not do that, honor that request. And I didn't know. I was so surface. I didn't understand that part of her not honoring the request goes back Why? to her childhood Why? of the confidence and the esteem. The and singing in front of everybody is easy to her. Right. But singing to me is so intimate and I couldn't understand that, right? And all the while, me not seeing that and my baggage is catching up with me and I'm becoming more um, careless in my behavior and my actions, that there was one particular Christmas holiday season. We were in my parents' house and um, somebody that I had started communicating by text happened to call. And in the midst of this conversation, my parents were asking Susan to sing. And she decided to sing the song. And as she's singing, I see this call come in. I take the call and I walk out the room. <gasps> and, 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 and lo and behold, we fast forward to January, everything explodes, D-Day comes. When we start to converse, com converse and unpack and go through this, she tells me, she said, you probably don't remember this, but I know it doesn't make sense to you. She said, but when I was singing that song in front of your parents, I was really trying to honor the request that you were asking me for the last seven years. 
And then, I was singing to you. It crushed me. And you walked away at that point. Like I'm, I felt the distance or it was becoming noticeable. And I found myself grasping, trying to do in desperation, do anything to let him, Hey, I'm still here. I don't, I don't know that you're with, I had no idea he was communicating or reaching out to other people or supplementing or whatever you want to call it. But I was reaching out to say, Hey, don't go. So that particular holiday or, or Christmas that happened and then followed by new year's. So when new year's came, I tried, we were, we're three kids in and I'm pregnant. So that's a lot going on and I'm busy and I'm tired. I'm exhausted all the time. And I think I was, I was saying, I was a stay at home mom at that time, but heck the job is never done. I was always exhausted and we were, didn't have a lot of time or investment for just us. And I'm thinking, you're okay. You know, I'm busy, but I know you, you're reading my mind that I still love you and you love me because you're working really hard to support all of us and you're working all the time. And I'm here trying to make sure home is okay. And we're doing this because we love each other. And my, my giving to you is through me giving to our kids and giving to our family. So hopefully you're accepting that that's... Let me stop you right there. What would you say to all parents listening right now who are married, who are going through even one kid? What, what would you say? Is it one date night a week? How do you give to your spouse? Have to be, you have to be intentional about still getting in time for each other. And so we do this thing about being us. You can't lose the us, even in the family. You have to still be just the two of you because that's where it started. And if you lose this, and I lost sight of that, and, and us not communicating because there should have been a conversation that says, hey, I'm hurting I miss us. I miss us too, but not communicating that because, well, you must not want us. Well, you must not want us. Defense mechanisms kick in. And I planned it. I was completely tired, bone tired, dead tired. But I said, I'm going to make the effort here because I'm losing him. Let me plan this romantic New Year's Eve dinner. I decorated the, um, the I guess, the dinner family room, lights, hanging, candlelight, you name it. And so we, the two of us can bring in the new year, put all the kids, did the kids thing first because they wanted to bring in the new year. We let them stay up for exceptions like that. So the older ones, baby was sleeping. The two-year-old was sleeping, but the other ones, you count in the new year, you give you hugs and kisses to everyone, pray as a family, and then you go tuck them in. And I'm like, come back. I've made some, you know, some nice little, put some music on, candlelight for us. He was not there. He didn't want to. He, he was gone at that point. And I didn't know why, but um, I felt it. That was like, that was the radar. Going into the new year, something's really off because he was like, I'm tired now. I've got to go. And he was on his phone and I didn't know why. And so uh, fast forwarding a few days later, (laughs) just about a week and a half later, January and everything hits the fan is where I discovered um, he forgot his phone, uh, going, taking our son to basketball practice. Um, right down the street. And I decided to look in that phone, um, which I had never, you know, because I didn't, I trust it before. I just, you know, I didn't think anything of it, but looking in there and seeing that he had left his phone, because I was at that point, I was looking to see what's going on. He's, he's always on this phone and he's okay. always, so I need to cut you off there. Cause I don't want to run out of time. Excuse me. This is amazing. I'm buckets of tears because all I keep thinking is how many marriages would have been saved had they had the courage that you two both did. There's a concept in Judaism called teshuva, which means when you do something bad, 
or not so great, bad choice. There's no, we don't have sin. We have bad choices and good choices. You do a really bad choice. You have to go through that process of making it okay. You can't just say, please forgive me, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, whatever it is. You have to actually ask for forgiveness and then go back to the pe- person or people that you've affected to get that forgiveness back. So let's talk a little bit about forgiveness. Now, Eric, you had to forgive, of course, they're mowing the lawn as I'm speaking. Um, <laughs> you had to forgive your mother, your father. Now, the grandparent that took you in, that was your mother's mother or your dad's mom? Uh, that was my step-grandmother. She was just a grandparent by marriage. Can we get a break for this guy? It's, it's incredible that your blood relatives, it was as if none of them could show up for you. And I know that that is divine. Um, I've done so much study. I can't say I know, I believe. Um, I've done so much study on so many different faiths that we really believe that, you know, the soul comes down and as it's on its way down, it's like, oh, no, I'll take that parent and that parent by blood. And then these are my soul families and mm -hmm, these siblings Mm -hmm. and this cousin. And, oh, I want to have that issue come up when I'm 25 and all that. Because we know that the soul is here to perfect itself as much as possible until we come back again. When I learned that I was 24 years old, that was a game changer for me. I was like, oh, we're not just here to go to Disneyland. We're actually here to grow. So I want (laughs) to remind some of our listeners of that because I don't look at you guys as sadomasochists. I look at you as people who are are really like awake. You know, how do you forgive your mother? How do you forgive yourself? And then we're going to go to Susan and we're going to find out how do you forgive Eric? Okay. How did I forgive my mom? I forgave my mom because I, I really grasped the cliche that people say all the time that people hurt. I attempted as best as I could to put myself in her shoes. I think many times, and I'm not saying this is always the case, but in some scenarios, mental illness comes from a trauma that was never addressed. Um, beyond the possibility that she could have been raped from what she alluded to in our conversations. She was a very, very dark complected woman, not even just in the United States. In any country you go to, the darker your pigmentation, the more you're equated to being less beautiful, less attractive. It's, it's, it's funny if we've seen this in Dominican Republic, when we've gone down there, I've heard it in Asian community, light is right. Dark is not. I'm sorry. I, who made that up? We're not saying that no, that's true. No, we're not true. saying that's true. But, but we're saying this is the stigma that we found. Our- like, we thought it was just a Black thing. Did a forum on race, and I invited different people from different cultures, Asian, Latino, and they would attest that there's still, there's a stigma of what's, like, uh, approved based on pigmentation. And just, I'm just trying to make the point. My mom, she was very dark complected, and I think that that, and not processing that well in her psyche and all this other stuff. So long story short, I tried to put myself in her shoes and I couldn't necessarily do it, but I I came to a piece to say, you know what, because she was hurt, you're doing anything you can to get rid of this hurt. You're going to end up hurting somebody else. And that gave me a piece to forgive her to the degree that I knew how to forgive her. Again, there's more that I feel like I could have did, but um, that was one thing. As far as forgiving myself, that was tough Wait, for me. One second. Is your mom still alive physically? No, she's not. Was that uh, also helpful? Because they say when the soul goes up, we're actually closer than we ever were before. Well, I, I made the courageous decision to, 
I decided to go visit her when I found out she was in a coma. Um, and I almost did not because we had become so distant, but I felt like I needed to. And I went into a room and I told her, even though she was in a coma, I felt like her spirit could still hear what my spirit was trying to say. And I said, listen, it'd be great if you came out of this and we try to cultivate some relationship. But I said, at the same token, with everything you've been through, I understand that you're tired, you're exhausted. And if you want to go ahead and, and be with the Lord, then I get that. And I felt a sense of peace with that. You know, she died about seven days after that. Um, but, you know, I don't have a I don't have a condemnation that, that comes with me every single day. There's certain things I would have done different, but I have a piece that, you know, um, I definitely learned a valuable lesson from the whole experience with Rosalind Kellum. And I have a great appreciation for who she is and was in my life. And for nothing else, she gave birth to me. And that's, she didn't have to do anything else. I heard you say last night in Clubhouse, I have to stop this because I don't know if Susan heard this. He said, I, I poured my heart out at one point of my mom and I was ready to start anew. And she said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. I have, I'm with the FBI on a secret mission. Yeah, she was there. I was there when she, she said was there. And, and I said last night, oh, she did have a special mission. She was being your mom. Yeah. <laughs> that's a nice fit. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't be here without her. <laughs> that's the truth. Um, forgiving myself was difficult because um, there was a lot of condemnation that I was wrestling with, especially reliving and going through these situations and, and seeing how much pain that I put on my family and um, how much pain I put on my wife what she had to go through being aware of the challenges she had from her childhood and just continuing to contribute to that. I think I probably found more permission to forgive myself when I saw her gradually beginning to forgive me. I think I understood a greater example of God's forgiveness that he gives to us when I saw her forgiving me because I felt unworthy and undeserving of it, but it drew me closer to God in ways that I couldn't even imagine because she was living out something that in her heart, there were parts of her that she didn't really want to do it. And she could speak more to that, but she wanted to obey her father, her father in heaven and say, you know what, this is what he's requiring of me. And it's not what I want, but I'm willing to, because you've told me to forgive this man. So, I mean, you could speak more to that, but that's where I, like, if she's going to forgive me, then I guess it's okay. Because at first I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know. Wow. Oh, my God. Do you see how the soul has a curriculum? And <laughs> you guys were just stepping into your parts. Like she was coming from her dad and you were kind of not that he would have cheated, God forbid, but like his lack of intimacy. It sounds like you just stepped into that role in your own way and you attract, you attract where you're at. And so the fact that you were both able to do this work, it's like, you just keep attracting that higher, higher vibration because you're both willing and ready to do the soul's curriculum. And the truth is, and I hope this helps you because this helps me all the time. You can't even go back if you wanted to go back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. was done was done at that yeah. low vibration because I believe only you, Eric, could teach these little boys who are like 35 years old 
yeah. on their phones. Oh, that's okay. It's just a little porn. I mean, I'm married. I'm happy. I'm not going to Vegas. Right. Right. We're yeah. not, you're doing the thing. Your soul's curriculum was, Eric, you are the only person that can do this thing, write a book about it and talk about it with this holy wife of yours. We need, we need you to actually go through something like it so you can speak to these people because I don't care what business you're in. Everybody's got a work wife. Did you hear that? Everybody's uh-huh. got a work spouse now. <laughs> oh, I just, I just hug and kiss her a little bit. I mean, it's n- really nothing. Yeah, they do, yeah. The words we use to describe you show me somebody who hasn't had intimacy mm. meeting, please, because I'd love to find those people. Mm. Anyway, Susan, back to you. How did you forgive Eric? The awareness, because many times we don't realize what we're doing or that we're hurting someone else because of the selfishness of, of our actions. I'm getting what I want and what I need for me, and it doesn't matter who's hurt, who is impacted. There was a, a level of selfishness and that and the choices that he made at that time that directly impacted him first and foremost, but impacted me and our children. I had to search Susan. I was angry. I was hurt by what he did, but I had to look at me and say, what where, what part do I play in this scenario? I can't sit back and just say, hey, you did this to me. It took a while to get to that place. Clifton Strengths, I don't know if you're familiar with those. It's an assessment that you do to find out different talents or strengths that you have as a person. My number one in that assessment is learner. I love learning. I love discovering. I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep researching. I've got to learn something new every day. At that point, though, I needed to learn about myself. So I had to shift my focus on what he did to me and look at me based on what I've been taught and what I've learned in my faith. I need to be forgiven all the time. I make so many mistakes all the time. I'm not perfect and no one is. Sometimes we give advice to others that we don't always apply for ourselves. We get Authentic us has to apply the thing. Whatever we know to do is right. If we're not applying mm. it, if we're not living that truth, mm. It's all a lot. Why do you think I have a podcast on forgiveness? I had to ask myself, do I need to be forgiven of anything? So and I, there are different levels, but if I need to be forgiven of anything, then I have to give and be willing to give what I what I want from someone. So I hear the same similar pattern with you forgiving me and me forgiving my mom, changing the perception narrative of I see you as my villain, and now I see you as somebody's victim. I see that life or something has caused you to be a victim. So I don't know if you're a Marvel person or not. When they go deep into the story of the villain, they show that he was really a good person that went wrong somehow. He just got it off a little, and it took him on a road that he ended up becoming the villain that he was. Are you familiar with Hamilton? Yes. But my favorite song in Hamilton of all the songs is this Quiet Uptown. When they get to the part where all she does is grab his hand and Lin-Manuel just depicts it with his face. Face says so much like, I'm not even worthy to receive you holding my hand right now. Every time I see it, I get a teardrop because it takes me back to when I saw that Susie was willing to forgive me. Like, this is what the world needs. We hold everyone up to this bondage that I'm not never going to let you off the hook because of how you hurt me. Also for me, the baggage. We're not designed to carry that weight around. We do it and we see even the physiological from just holding on to and harboring 
bitterness. It turns into bitterness and then you're unhappy and you're just carrying it. We, we have to release that. Not just for you. You're, you're forgiving someone is not just for that person or for you. It, it just has a residual effect of, of releasing something else for someone else. This case like where he says, me demonstrating forgiveness as uncomfortable as it was, was freeing. I was pregnant. The baby um, felt Harboring that and making my child sad. There was a lot to go through, but I was determined I am not going to carry this baby and just be full of sadness for her sake. And actually, um, I named her Victoria. I'm going to be victorious in this. There's going to be victory from this situation. Didn't ask for this, but it's but it's here. And I've got to find a way to navigate through this. And there has to be life that comes out of it because there's a chaotic beauty in our pain. There's beauty. You have to look and search for the beauty behind the suffering. There's suffering, but you can't have one without the other. Even to bring life into the world, there has to be travail and labor and suffering and pain in order for life to happen. Things grow in the dirt. They grow in those places. The decay. It's yeah. But it's, there's a richness there that the nutrients are there to feed something that sprouts out of that and has so much life in it and so much beauty that comes from the dark place. It comes from the painful place or the ugly place or the place that we many times don't value. That's where, yeah, that's that, that's the, the deep that you were talking about. Isn't this, isn't this so Jewish and black right now? Just let's, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? There's Christian, there's Christian in there too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's also just, I'm sorry. I this is when I see such a synchronicity with Black culture and Jews because if you look at our painful past, Travail, absolutely. Oh, we get right back, right, and we're trying to give to our children what we have before. Yeah. And I've yeah. been under the poverty line multiple times because my parents were like, "Get a job." Like they haven't supported me financially since I'm 18 years old. So funny how people are like, "Well, Jews are rich and they own the media." It's like, no, if they own the. <laughs> Yeah, people wouldn't hate Jews in Israel so much. Yeah, but no, you. You didn't get the memo, right? <laughs> yeah, no. How do you go on from here? You both forgave Eric. You forgive your dad. Yes. And then do you have moments where you feel like you slip back because there's still that hurt that the, the pain bodies, right? Yes, but you challenge yourself and you continue to push it. Sometimes we'll have an injury and we'll go through a process to heal from the injury. And then when we feel like we're better, we just resume. You don't resume. You continue to work. You continue to strive for more or a better place. And if you're not investing continuously, you will revert. When we started out, we were, of course, we did dates. Then we were poor. So we did, we just walked and just sat and talked. And, and that was the beauty because that's where the true intimacy is. And sometimes when you get so much, you lose the importance of that, that you have all these distractions that are not quality time, that you need to go back to what you used to do when you built the foundation, when you didn't have any money and all you had was time to just sit and talk. That was the richest time. When you had nothing, you had everything. We're distracted by the things that we forget to look and search for what's right there in daily search and daily look for ways. And when we miss a day or you or you miss a week, you notice. So most people I see today, it feels like run away from faith. Well, you see God, God forsake me and, and I can't trust people to church, you know, a pastor or a minister doing these things. It's like, 
no, no, no. Check your brother and your dad and all and your sister and all these other people committing infidelity in different ways, by the way, first, before you start pointing fingers. And shouldn't it be the person running the congregation that goes, yeah, let me talk to you guys about something that's not been working in my life because I am not a God. I'm a human being. And I got things to say. How did that play out for you, Eric, being part of the clergy? Yeah, I wasn't officially licensed or ordained when all this was happening. I had been working in ministry full time. So there was definitely a consciousness and awareness of God and faith during that process. But we're very adamant about transparency. Uh, We think that there is a huge, we both are full time pastors at our church. I know the stigma that comes when people think, oh, he's a pastor because now I've got to put him on this. I can't talk to him about every because he wouldn't understand. And I'm like, don't, no, 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 no. I, I'm still just an everyday guy. I, this passionate about my, I don't try to hide that or cover that. I think part of me showing you the lessons I had to learn is if I am in a place where I've healed from that and it is now a scar that I can show to you, Jesus showed his scars. The res- responsibility we feel that we have to show folks our scars, you can connect to us because you touched our scars. And so transparency is a huge thing for me that there might be that one person that will never say it out loud, but they've gone through the exact same thing. And if it just resonates with them to say, well, I'm not a freak, I'm not abnormal, maybe there is hope, then that's the reason why I share. I had to get some maturity in something because now there's a responsibility that I now have to shepherd people in a particular way. And if I'm not in a mature space, then I am going to recklessly send them into other places. Once we began to heal in that area, I started to see how he was taking me down this path. There's a responsibility that you have when you're leading other people and you needed to continue to grow. As we And we still are continuing to grow as opposed to, like I said earlier, where you have so many people who are giving advice or telling people to do something that they themselves don't adhere to. Even now that we are one, as, as a couple, I still have to make sure that there's a difference between sameness and oneness and, we, and our individuality as who we are. We have both. It's both and for us. Some people say, are you that? Or I have an identity of my own. I want there to be an integrity that is, is strong enough that and it goes beyond what people see. If no one ever sees, if no one ever else knows it, I can live with that, that I knew I did my very, very best to be the very best that I can be. I got the chill. Please tell us how we can get in touch with you. You you really are both superheroes and you met your match. Real love. Pickle Tourette's. <laughs> I do. It's so bad. It just doesn't. And it's all 80s and 90s. So anybody under 35 is like, what's wrong with her? You can find me on social media at Eric Kellum, E-R-I-C-K-E-L-L-U-M. I also want to encourage any guys that might be tuning in. I did write a book called Sexual Healing. A Man's Sexual Journey and the Lessons Learned Along the Way, which, by the way, Susan does the foreword for the book. I had asked her permission to write a book after we were having amazing sex. And she said, no, this is so good. I got to tell someone. But I wasn't just telling about the sex. I was telling about the intimacy and the journey because people think intimacy is sex and it's so much different. And for many men, our education was porn. It, you know, I, God created sex. Self-gratification. And, and so we we tainted his intention for it. 
And so I was like, I, and she said no at first, and I didn't want to put her in a compromising position, but then we kept counseling people, couples, and she kept hearing the same scenario and the same men regurgitating the same stuff based on their carnal definition of it. And she said, you have to write this book. And she does the foreword for the book. So it's in my bio on Instagram at Eric Kelly ebooks and paper, all those ways that you can get the book. So definitely check it out. And then it took me a while to recover because a lot of what happened with us was on social media. I had an aversion to social media for a long, but you can find me on Instagram and on Facebook. Do you speak to couples? Do you have workshops? Yeah. We do one-on-one or, or couple counts, marriage workshop, retreats. God bless you guys. Right. Awesome. Thank you Thank so you. much. We enjoyed it. Okay, here are some golden nuggets of wisdom from the Kellums. You don't have to go through something traumatic to be able to speak to big things. The shape of our souls is made up of what we grow through. We all have these holes from childhood and have to work through them on our own. And if we do, we will bring them into our romantic partnerships. Absence of words of encouragement and affection can leave a person with very low self-esteem. So if you're parenting right now, take note of that and do something different with your kids. All of my gifts are amazing and I am beautiful and my gifts don't have to look like someone else's in order to prove my worth. I am enough. And we should never make the other person's love or validation of who we are to prove our worthiness. We are still loved even if the other person's actions don't add up to what we think we need in a relationship. You must make time for the other person and have an us. Also, don't assume the other person is reading your mind. Make sure you're always checking in and saying, is everything okay? Are you getting what you need? This is what I need. Lack of emotional intimacy can lead to fantasy or emotional or even physical intimacy with others outside of your marriage. How do you forgive? Try to put yourself in the other person's shoes for a moment and have compassion. Mental illness can sometimes and often come from a traumatic event in that person's life. Susan very courageously said, I had to sit back and say, where do I play a role in his cheating? She said, I had to look at myself and say, is there anything I need to be forgiven for? Because as long as I could find one thing, forgiveness is forgiveness. We never know how much we will affect another person. So if I could find one thing that I need to be forgiven for, I should be able to forgive someone else. Eric said, I saw Susan forgiving me the same way I had to forgive my mom. I saw her as my villain versus I see her now as someone else's victim. We cannot go on with cancel culture of this idea that I will never forget or forgive what you did. We need to learn how to let things go, not just for ourselves or even the other person, but for our future generations. If we practice holding on to resentments and carrying them into dis-ease, in the present moment and in the, into the future, what do you think the future generations will do? In fact, Susan made that decision while she was pregnant with their daughter and named her Victoria because she wanted her to be a symbol of being a victor, that they all as a family would be victorious through this very dark period in their marriage. And she decided to carry on and find the joy, find the beauty Throughout the sadness, throughout the chaos, there is a chaotic beauty in our pain. There's suffering, but there's always beauty and life in it. And you can't have one without the other. There has to be labor before you can have life. You have to look beyond the pain and search for the beauty. Things grow in the dirt. They grow in those dark, deep places. 
There's a richness there. The nutrients are there to sprout something out of it. That comes from the ugly or dark place, or sometimes the places we don't even know contain value. Thank you for joining us. If you know a couple that is going through a very difficult time right now, please share this with them. Tell them to get in touch with the Kellums. Maybe they can help or maybe they can provide a resource. They may be going through some post-traumatic stress from that situation and perhaps listening to this episode could help them heal from it even a little bit. It's worth it. Thank you so much for listening. I'm sending you all a very, very big hug. Go out and give someone in your life that you love kind word or a hug if you can, if it's safe to do so. And please share with them how important it is to give words of encouragement and that intimacy really comes from face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact, sharing space with someone and really opening up your heart to them. That is true intimacy. My rabbi, Rabbi David Aaron, who's been on the podcast, always says intimacy is actually into me see. When we take the time to look inside of someone else's soul, really listen with both ears and shut that mouth of ours. And when we take the time to open up our heart and really share what's deep inside with another person, that is when we actually get very close. It has so much less to do with the physical intimacy that is promoted in so much of what we see and hear as acceptable intimacy. Think about that the next time you enter into a relationship with someone, even if it's not romantic. We all have wonderful opportunities every single day to practice being empathetic. And that way, when we are betrothed to someone and we enter into a very intimate relationship, we can practice being very empathetic with them, opening our heart, listening with our full heart, and making sure to treasure and cherish the people that are closest to us in being the most intimate with them. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode could inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always. always.